Oh, my bad. We hit it at the same time. You're good. You're good. All right. I got it now. Uh, so this is actually our last sermon in the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 150. Uh, finishing up our scale the mountain, worshiping God from the songs of his people. Some of you may be thinking we could have climbed a mountain quicker than we finished the Psalms, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. It uh, really does walk through all of uh, the areas of our lives, and so um, we are excited to, to finish this up. We will be uh, next week. Um, ben Hine, who's been here before, a uh, church planter in Indianapolis, he will be here preaching next week. Uh, and then after that, uh, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to walk through that book together. So uh, just FYI, that's where we're going. But this morning, we're finishing up this sermon series. And my question for us this morning is, what is worship? Now, you may be thinking, well, we're at the end of a sermon series on worship, so why are you asking that question now? Shouldn't that have been asked at the beginning? Well, we've kind of been walking through it this entire sermon series, and so this is more of a capstone. Uh, Psalm 150 really provides itself as a capstone to the fullness of the book of Psalms, and so I want to look at what worship is. Uh, worship a dictionary definition of worship is adoration or devotion comparable to religious homage shown toward a person or a principle. Now, certainly there are other definitions that are specifically religious, giving adoration or devotion to a deity. But I think actually this is a helpful definition because uh, we worship is honor and glory attributed to someone or something. can be a deity, but doesn't have to be. Maybe it's harder for us today to see worship in our broader culture. There's less church attendance, for sure. And our default position in the modern world is that worship is a choice. Something that you choose to do, adding it to your life if you want to. And that it's possible even that the default position is not to worship, but just to be. You can choose to worship if you want, or you can choose to just be in the world and be secular and not worship and not engage in that reality. But I think the Bible would teach us that something very different, that we are all by default worshipers, and that we, have, we certainly do have choice of who or what we will worship, but not whether or not we will worship. Now, that's not exactly how people view worship in our culture today. But does that make it, if, if, if we understand that worship is the default position of being human, does that make it more difficult for us to worship God in our culture? Maybe, maybe not, but certainly the modern world has lots of ways of challenging or threatening our worship of God. And so as we consider what worship is, I think we need to consider what is the biggest threat to your worship of God. Now, there's probably lots of different ideas that you have in your mind right now. And there certainly are lots of conversations around what would be the biggest threat to our worship of God. Some, they think it's wokeness. Not even sure what that is, but wokeness, you know, it's this nebulous thing. Maybe equally ne nebulous is Christian nationalism, or politics, gender ideology, on and on. We could just come up with all sorts of things that could be threats to our worship. But I want to say, if we understand worship properly, I think our biggest threat is actually consumerism. 
that our biggest threat to worship is actually consumerism. Seeing all of life as a buying and selling, a working for and acquiring and enjoying products, which in turn means making and selling products to maximize profit. Now, this is a thing that we probably don't realize is the way in which we function in the world today, but I think this is the biggest threat to our worship for a number of reasons. One is that worship can become an artifact to be ignored. You see, consumerism solves what worship used to. Throughout all of human history, there has been a strong belief in the supernatural, and sometimes it was the only thing that you could cling to in light of disaster. But today, our consumerism teaches us if we work for it, we can basically get anything we want. We don't need that. With our basic needs met so easily, so often, and our urges and wants so easily satisfied by just buying something and it showing up at our door two days later from anywhere in the world, whatever we want. Or we can subscribe to something, we can consume things, we can simply ignore the supernatural. We can simply ignore the need for worship. Well, which is what we say, but actually we end up worshiping other things, which we'll talk about. So that's, that's one of the threats. Uh, the other is that worship can then become, if, if we choose not to ignore worship, but choose to commit ourselves to the worship of God, consumerism still affects our worship because worship can become a product to be consumed. If we are trained in our culture uh, to consume things, then worship simply becomes something to be consumed. If all of life is about buying and selling products and trying to get the best product, then why should worship be any different? Now, we come and we consume. If we like it, we stay and consume more. If we don't like it, we find a better place to consume. Now, here's the thing. We aren't setting out to do this. But if our whole lives are geared in this direction, it begins to affect and shape how we think about worship. Now, not just thinking of worship as in Sunday morning church attendance, but all of our worship. We think about worship as something to be consumed. We get books, music, and even it begins to affect the way we view our Bible. That this is a product to consume which will enhance our lives. And if it stops enhancing our lives, we go find a different product that we'll consume to enhance our lives. Now, the flip side of this consumerism, the third threat, is that worship becomes a trophy to be earned. So it's an artifact to be ignored, it's a product to be consumed, or a trophy to be earned. You see, if worship becomes a product for us, then the flip side of consuming it is trying to give the best product possible. Now, whether that is our... Uh, production of worship, or our own good works before God, we view it like a trophy. If we do enough good in it, we will get the reward. This is how we kind of walk through life, right? Everything is something to be earned and displayed. Well, if worship is like that too, we may end up more disciplined and work harder than the other options that we've looked at. 
But worship just becomes another pursuit alongside everything else. Another trophy to be earned. Another display of our accomplishments. Now, if we've been walking through, as we've been walking through the Psalms, I hope that you recognize that the Psalms present a very different view of worship. A very different vision of worship. And this psalm really summarizes a lot of those things. Psalm 150 is sort of the capstone psalm. And so we're going to address these threats to our worship from consumerism by looking at what it means that worship is directed to the one true God. Worship is embodied by us in all of life. And that worship is enjoyed as the chief end of humans. That's it ways we're looking at that here this morning. So let's read Psalm 150. Maybe. There we go. Okay. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heaven. Praise Him for His mighty works. Praise His unequaled greatness. Praise Him with a blast of the ram's horn. Praise Him with the lyre and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and flutes. Praise Him with a clash of cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Worship in this psalm is shown to be directed to the one true God. This psalm starts with this phrase, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now this is not directed at some notion, some vague notion of God, but praising the Lord, this word literally means praise Yahweh. So there's a, a shortened way in which the Hebrew, uh, there's a, it's like a shortened version of the word Yahweh, but it's what we translate as hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. That's what this word means, right? So it's praising Yahweh. Meaning the phrase is not praising God generally, but praising Yahweh specifically. Praising Yahweh specifically. Then it goes on to say, praise Him in His sanctuary. Remember, the temple is this very important piece that we've looked at throughout the Psalms. The temple, Mount Zion, it is this important place in which God dwells with His people. And so, when the psalmist here is saying to praise the Lord and to praise God in His sanctuary, he is saying, you will praise the one true God. Not just praise God generally. This isn't just a call for general worship of God, vague notions of a deity, but to praise Yahweh specifically. And to praise Him for His mighty works. And to praise Him for His unequaled greatness. That He is a God who has accomplished great things for His people. Right Throughout this psalm series, we've looked at uh, the psalms that remember the Exodus and remember God's work in salvation for His people. This psalm is calling us to praise Him for His mighty works, to praise Him for His unequaled greatness, to lift Him high, To know things about Him and His greatness, His character, His attributes, what He's like, and then to praise Him for it. Now here's the struggle for us in our modern world. 
we starve ourselves of experiencing the God who is worthy of worship and awe, but we're made for worship. So we end up just worshiping anything and everything. You see, it's this weird tension of we believe that we are by default not worshipers, and we don't need that because we can get whatever we want. And yet, we have this urge for awe-inspiring things. Right? It's why if there's some sort of clip that goes viral of maybe it's a, a sporting thing, a human doing something incredible that doesn't make any sense, or some act of kindness that's glorious and doesn't make any sense, or some vivid image of the creation as glorious. We want to share those things because we have this need for worship, to be inspired, to have awe and wonder. And yet we declare often with our lives and with our words that we don't need to worship God. But that comes into conflict with our need for awe and our need for something bigger. And so instead of actually pursuing that and running towards the place in which that will be satisfied, we, consumerism blinds us and numbs us to this awe because we starve ourselves of the real thing and distract ourselves with a million other things. We can just distract ourselves away from that thing. We could find another cool thing to look at, another cool thing to buy. We could find another thing. And guess what? It continues to just leave us empty continues to leave us empty because we're made to worship the one true God. And it makes producing those things, it leaves us empty and it makes those that are producing those things that distract us, that we direct our worshiping selves to, well, it makes them a lot of money. Right? Like actually, I was looking at, as I was thinking about worship and thinking through different things, I was I uh, saw that the term uh, Swifty, you know, I'm pretty up on my pop culture references here. I said I didn't have any, guys, but you guys can make fun of me now, later. The staff only make fun of me for my pop culture references, but Swifty actually, uh, in 2017, uh, one of Taylor Swift's companies uh, trademarked that phrase. So you can just, like, if there's a thing, a phenomenon of some kind, somebody's going to try and make money off of it. Why? Because we are worshiping creatures. And we will consume and direct our worship towards anything that will inspire awe in us. And somebody's got to make some money off of that. Right? And we are just actually fulfilling the same cycle that has happened throughout all of human history. Right? Where local deities... Uh, they, they, you know, you could set up a temple and make a whole lot of money off of praying to this God who will solve this problem for you. That's literally what we do everywhere, right? You got a problem? I'll solve it for you. Here it is. Now come and consume this thing, and it will solve your problem. It doesn't actually solve our problem. The challenge of this psalm for us isn't simply that we need awe, that we have this need of awe, but that that need needs to be directed. The Psalms declare the worship of the one true God, and He is unmatched in His glory and His greatness. 
This is the challenge for us in the God of the Scriptures. That He has unequaled greatness. There is no one like Him. He is the Lord. He is God over all the universe. And you will praise Him in His sanctuary, meaning He dwells in a specific place. And He has a name, Yahweh. It's not just God generally speaking. All that to say is that there is really one true worship. Right? That's, that's the tension in the Scriptures is that God is God over all and yet He is very specific. It's not just calling for general religious worship. Right? Now, here's the thing. If that's true, if, if God is Yahweh and He presents Himself as the one who is praised in His sanctuary where He dwells with His people in the temple and that there really is only one true worship of God kind of presents a problem for us, right? Because we worship Jesus, right? We see this very clearly in the New Testament. In Matthew 28, the women, this is right after Jesus is resurrected from the tomb, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Now, in light of what we know about the Old Testament, in light of what this psalm says, this is one of the more radical statements in the New Testament. Because it very specifically says, the women come to Jesus and they worship him. They know what the Old Testament teaches. Worship is for God alone. And yet they worship Jesus. This is why, as we talked about last week, as Hunter talked about with Tertullian, the formulations of the Trinity are so incredibly important for us. Understanding that God reveals Himself in the Scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one God. This deep understanding of who God is is so important for us because our worship is to be directed to God and God alone. And so, we do worship Jesus because He is fully God. Jesus, the Son, is fully God. He is the God of unequaled greatness and must be worshipped. Right? Just like... Yahweh must be worshipped and must be worshipped in the sanctuary. God must be worshipped and must be worshipped in Jesus. This is why worship comes to Jesus. Right? Worship can only be in the place that God dwells, which is most fully in the person of Jesus. Colossians tells us this. Colossians 1.19 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Speaking of Christ. Worship is directed at God and He has revealed Himself to us in the person of His Son, Jesus. And so when we say, praise Yahweh and praise Jesus, we are speaking to this same God. That's really important for us to know because if we're going to understand how worship works throughout the Psalms and is directed to God and God alone, we better have an understanding of why we say we worship Jesus. What do we believe about Jesus? Jesus how we worship Him. So worship then 
is not just this vague, general, religious understanding, but is worship directed to the one true God. Worship also is embodied by us in all of life. Looking back at Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heaven. Praise Him for His mighty works. Praise His unequaled greatness. Praise Him with a blast of the ram's horn. Praise Him with the lyre and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and flutes. Praise Him with a clash of cymbals. Praise Him with loud clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see, this is not a product. Worship is not a product, not a thing, but it is an all-of-life embodiment of our honoring and praising of God. It's all of our lives. This psalm, in particular, looks at what musical worship looks like. And for your sake, I will not be displaying any of that musical worship right now. Because that's not in my skill set in any way. But do you see that the way in which this psalm says that worship is to be an embodied experience, right? Here are all of these instruments, the ram's horn, the lyre and the harp, the tambourine, and Presbyterians, watch out, dancing. <laughs> dancing is appropriate in worship because the psalmist says it is. It's an embodied experience. It's meant to be all of our lives. And musical worship has always been a part of the people of God because there's something actually really powerful about music. Now actually, it relates to even the the things that we were talking about with the Trinity. One of the strategies of uh, the heretical teachings of a guy named Arius, who was teaching that Jesus was not God, was to make up songs that people could sing And they would sing these songs with theological truths that were wrong, but they would sing them because there's memory attached with song. Like just the way our brains work, we attach those things together, which is why musical worship is so important. It's why God commands it. It's why what we sing is really important because we are teaching ourselves as we sing together things of God, praising His unequaled greatness. It's an incredibly important reality. But not only is it an incredibly important reality, it's also a sort of strange thing that we do. Right? Like, in the modern world, it's a strange thing that you would gather together with other people and sing aloud. Maybe at a concert you would do it, but it's really loud and no one can hear you. Here someone can identify your specific voice. Do you like that? That's a little little scary. Because like, if you stand near me, I I apologize. Because it's not very good. But it is actually one of my more favorite things to do at City Hope, is every once in a while just to stop and to try and listen, and I hear specific voices of people I know who are worshiping God together. There's a strange, powerful beauty about that. That we are embodied together as a people who are worshiping God. That He is hearing our singing to Him. 
hearing our praises to Him. That we are responding to Him and His unequaled greatness by declaring it back to Him. And if you are skilled musically, this is a great way to declare and to showcase and to utilize your gifts for the sake of God's glory. Now, if you're not skilled musically, like myself, what do we do? Is this the only way we worship? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. We could also dance, which I'm not skilled in either. So I'm in trouble here, right? Like, no dancing. You certainly don't want me singing and clapping at the same time because I will mess one of them up. I can only do one of those things at a time. And it's not clapping ever or singing ever. So what do I do with that, right? Like, how do I, how do I praise the Lord if I can't do those things? Well, certainly, I think you still do those things because God is doing something in you. It's not about a performance. Worship is not a performance. It's not a product, right? Consumerism teaches us that if we're not good at something, we don't do it because that's not like we only get the things that are good, right? So we don't, we don't engage in something we're not good at. We find another interest or another hobby or another thing, right? No, no, no. Worship teaches us that we all participate because it's not about having a product before God, right? If you read through the Old Testament, right, and, and read through some of the sacrifices, particularly the burnt offerings, you're like, that says a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and you're like, that didn't sound pleasing. I don't think that smelled good. It probably didn't. The pleasing aroma to the Lord was not about the product itself, as though God needed you to burn something before Him. It's about your worship. It was about the posture of the heart. It was about knowing that this person is offering some of their best in worship of God. That's the pleasing aroma. So it is not about the greatness of your singing ability it is not about the greatness of your tambourine play or your dancing. This is why I love the end of our service with the shakers. Most of that's not on beat. I think I know that much, at least, right? And there's a whole lot of dancing. Most of it's not in rhythm. But it's a beautiful display of worship. It's a beautiful display of worship. That's what we should be like. So, so today, challenge, right? Everybody dance around, be crazy. No. But that's actually, why, why don't we do that? Because immediately we're embarrassed. Immediately there's something in us that teaches us that's not okay to display. That's not okay for us to display because it, it, actually people then look at us and then we're, we're insecure about all these things, and Right? We need to embrace worship of God with a childlike faith, as Jesus calls us to, in which we're able to worship with all of ourselves before God. But it also, when it says that everything with breath praises, sing praises to God, everything that breathes sing praises to God, it's really looking at all of life worship. Right? All of life is worship. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians Chapter 10 says this. 
So, what, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now certainly in the, in the context here, he's talking about some controversy about whether or not to eat and drink food that was offered to idols and all these things. We'll get into that when we get to 1 Corinthians, right? It'll be a while before we're in chapter 10, but we'll get there, right? But in the context of that, he does say this. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. What he's saying is that all of your life is worship. Everything you do can be contributed to worship. Colossians, he says a similar thing. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel others with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Worship God. It is an embodied all-of-life experience. Which means, as the Psalms has taught us, we need to bring all of us. Which means at times, we want to sing and dance. And at times, we want to weep and sit. The Psalms teach us that both are worship. We've talked a lot about both, right? A couple weeks ago, we saw weeping as worship. This is singing as worship. Both are worship. And both might happen at the same time. If I sing and dance, you might weep. Right? Both might happen at the same time. But it's all of our lives. We have to bring all of us. That's why watching our children worship is so valuable because they just bring all of who they are. They don't know how to do it otherwise. It's as we get older and interact in our world where we learn to put on masks in certain places, take that mask off and put on a different mask in this place. Right? And what God is calling us to here is to bring all of us to worship Him in all of our lives. Consumerism teaches us that worship is a product to be consumed, but not a thing that we participate in in all of life. We need to find how we can be an embodied worshiping community together. Which means we need to know each other. Means we need to engage with one another. Which means we need to bring our full selves to each other and to the Lord. Now, worship is an embodied all of life experience. It's directed to the one true God, but it's also enjoyed by us as the chief end. Of humans. Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the doctrinal statements of our church. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, worship is not a trophy to be earned. It is the end of all things. It itself is the prize. You see, consumerism teaches us that we are always on, always producing, always trying to earn things. Always trying to earn stuff so that we can enjoy it later, right? Always trying to earn stuff so that we can enjoy it later. But worship is the thing itself. Worship is the prize. It's the thing we participate in 
And it's the very prize. It's the end. And it's a gift from God to us. It's a gift from God to us. Psalm 16 says, You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Right? Other translations say that uh, there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. In God's presence are pleasures forevermore. And what is seated at God's right hand? Jesus. We worship Jesus and that He is the one who grants pleasures forevermore. And the reason we do that, right? And the reason we worship God and the opportunity to worship God is not something that we have earned, but something that is given to us. It's given to us. It's a grace given to us by God. Because of the Gospel, Jesus has welcomed us into His presence so that we can worship Him. By removing our sin from us, we can now come boldly into the presence of God and worship Him with all of us. Because Jesus has done everything necessary for us to come into God's presence. Now, what if I uh, don't enjoy God, though? Maybe. Jerry's still out on that. What if I don't enjoy God? Well, certainly there are seasons that are going to be very difficult in our relationship with God. That's true. We live in a difficult, broken world. It's why God gives us the resources of lament and weeping and community and togetherness so that we can walk through those things together. So certainly there are seasons of that. But there's also uh, um, David Benner. I quoted him. I don't have the the direct quote, but in our uh, liturgy uh, sermon series, I quoted him about the idea of our experiencing spiritual dryness. He said, this is actually a great apologetic for the existence of God. Because if we were coming up with a religious system, we wouldn't come up with one in which God was so frustratingly independent calls God a frustratingly independent God. God, you say that there are pleasures forevermore and I want to experience you and I want to worship you and then I come and I read my Bible and I come to church and I still feel dry. Well, that's because we come with this consumeristic mindset that says, I came and I paid my dues. I did my thing. You are now supposed to give me stuff. Right? I didn't sin this week. I read my Bible this week. I did this thing this week. So you're supposed to give me the good feelings of worship. When worship is playing, I'm supposed to be able to close my eyes, raise my hands, and feel really good about myself. But what if God is actually doing something in that to show you that He is a person? that you are to be in a relationship with and not a product that you are to earn. Not a product or a trophy that you are supposed to put in your work and then get what you wanted out of it. 
Maybe worship isn't actually about you getting something out of it, but about honoring and worshiping Him. And in that, our lives will be transformed. We will experience pleasure forevermore. All of those things are true. But we experience those things at His pace and not ours. One of the things that Jesus says in the Gospel of John is that the Spirit of God is like the wind. It blows wherever it wants, and you can see the effect of it, but you can't see it. Sometimes I think we don't think that the Spirit works like that. We think the Spirit is a mechanical process. Right? I have the right theology. I believed the Gospel, and I read my Bible. Now give me what I wanted. And it, maybe it's even a good thing. I'm not even asking for something crazy uh, that, that, you know, I'm not asking for a, a big house or all these things. I'm asking for me to experience your presence. But we're coming kind of demanding it. What did Jacob have to do? Wrestle with God. And cling to Him. And say, don't, no, you can't leave until you bless me. Sometimes that's the kind of struggle we have to have with God. Why is that the case? I don't know. Ask him. He's frustratingly independent. Why do we submit ourselves to the Word and walk through these things and still hard things happen and we don't want to enjoy God? I don't know, but in that, God is doing more in refining where our actual desires are, what we're actually longing for, and in stripping away, actually you want the good feelings about God and not God Himself. All of these things come because we are in relationship with God. And he is doing what he wants. And so we submit to that and we worship him. And actually, right, that's the whole point of worship. We're worshiping God's unequaled greatness. Unequaled greatness. We are not worshiping someone that we can control. Otherwise, it's not worship. He's actually bigger than us and more glorious than us. And so we're worshiping someone that we cannot control but we can know because he's good and because he's made himself known to us in Jesus. And so the answer to our threat of worship of consumerism, right? The answer to this is a full embodied lifestyle of discipleship with Jesus. A worship of Jesus in all of life. That means that we can't just come and worship God on Sunday and then the rest of the week consume without regard to Jesus. Because what that will teach us is to come here and consume and not actually worship. But also, it doesn't mean that Sunday is just like every other day. Like, actually, there's something quite beautiful about our submitting to God's Word and worshiping Jesus and taking real rest and Sabbath. I wonder what would change and happen in our daily worship of Jesus if we had the space to resist consumerism by resting actually.
by laying it down and saying, actually, God will take care of us and we can really rest and worship Jesus. wonder if that would create some sense of anticipation in our life for the worship of Jesus. Anticipation isn't really a thing anymore in our culture because we can just get whatever we wanted right now. We don't have to anticipate anything. I finished that episode of that show. Guess what? The next one's right there. I don't even have to wait a week. Right? I could get whatever I want right now. What if our Sunday worship, both corporately together and individually, our worship of Jesus and our resting and our Sabbathing, what if that created in us an anticipation for something that God was going to do? For experiencing Jesus in a special way, for experiencing real rest and enjoyment of Him so that each day I actually had a longing for it. And the more I build a habit of resting and worshiping Jesus on Sunday, the more I'll actually anticipate and rest and worship Jesus the rest of my week. Now certainly there are seasons and individual uh, uh, circumstances that prevent me on some weeks from doing that. That's okay. It's actually given for you as a gift, not to condemn you. Right? It's given, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? It's a gift given to us. But the more we build in the habit of rest and Sabbath, the more we're able to anticipate worshiping Jesus, and that will transform our daily worship of Jesus. It will help us move out of consumerism and move into worship. This discipleship is not adding the worship of God to our lives, but transforming everything about our lives to worship and center on Jesus. To actually see all of my life as worship and everything I submit myself to as an opportunity to experience and give praises to Jesus. And if I do that in all of my life and not just add Jesus as this extra thing that I do, I will begin to experience the transformative power of Jesus in my life. Begin to experience what it means that I'm created to be a worshiper of the one true God. And that will transform everything about us. Because we are made as creatures that want to worship God. And He has made Himself available for us to worship Him. So let's do that. It's a gift given to us that we can run for. Let's do that together as God's people. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you now. And Lord, we ask that you would come and meet with us. That you would help us to lay aside whatever prevents us from coming near to you in worship. Whatever that is that's, that's causing us to, to run the other way. Whatever it is that's distracting our attention from you, Jesus would you come and would you meet with us? Would you show that to us? Would you help us to repent and lay that down and run into your presence with all of ourselves? And Jesus, would you be honored in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.